Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. (laughs) Thanks so much for making a commitment to learning and hope everybody is doing well. Thank you for joining us on part two of our basics cardiology episode. Um, I'm your host. I'm Jordan Porter, joined by the fabulous Yvonne Brandenburg. And of course, we still have Ed. Durham this week, CVT, LATG, VTS in cardiology, because, you know, he knows all things cardiology. Yeah. And, and definitely if, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, which is the part one of the basics, check that out. Um, he talks about his history and holy moly. I know, right? Like, Like he's, he's been in veterinary medicine since 1976 like yeah since way before i was born (laughs) (laughs) Uh, sorry sorry (laughs) but that's what 13 years before i was born (laughs) at least i was born in the 70s so you know i can relate kind of with that yeah right um but yeah he's he's amazing he you know, he has his VTS in cardiology. He was one of the founding members of, of the cardiology group, which is amazing. Um, he's, he was on the executive board. He's worked at the university, of, uh, Missouri university, Ross university. Um, he, I believe currently is at Southwest Florida veterinary specialists, and he's working back in cardiology, which is, which is good. Um, he's also written, um, he was the author and editor of the cardiology for veterinary technicians and nurses. So honestly, like if you're into cardiology, definitely get that book. It's going to be, it's going to be so great for studying. It's a, it's a really good, I've seen it. I, I just have I don't own it yet. It's on my wish list. <laughs> right. So, um, definitely take a moment, check that out. Um, just a reminder for this week too, we are still getting our race approval. So I'm sure this will get race approved, um, fairly soon. Um, and then once it does, you can use that for an hour of CE, um, and get your certificate through the membership site. Otherwise, you know, you could definitely use it for self-study and it's cardiology who doesn't need that for study. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, yeah. All right. And then um, take a look at the resources because I think um, some of the stuff he talked about in last week's episode and this week's episode, we'll try to take some of those ideas and, and plunk them in for you because he's got some good resources too. So yeah. For All sure. right. We're going to dive right back in um, and uh, we hope you enjoy. Bye guys. When we talked about the stethoscopes a little bit, which kind of leads into the physical exam, I mentioned how important that is. Um, And, you know, we should go ahead and do a full physical exam, excuse me, lecture. I will say that generally speaking, your physical exam should start at one end and work your way to the other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then your auscultation, the 
uh, just real, real briefly, when you're listening to the chest, I start on the left. Mm-hmm. I know other people who start on the right, so they don't forget to do it. It doesn't matter. You can do it e- either way, whatever suits you best. What just, I, I do, think getting into like a habit of like, absolutely. this is how I do it. Yep. And I do it this, this way every time. Yeah. That will make sure you listen to everything. So the, we talk about murmurs where they're loudest. That's the point of ma- maximal intensity. And so I start by palpating the chest and where I feel the heart beating on the chest wall. The, the term for that is the apical impulse or mm-hmm. the ape, apex beat. And right there, it should be on the left. If it's predominantly on the right, you know there's a problem. But <laughs> if it's on the left as it's supposed to be, then I put my stethoscope right there. And that's where murmurs of mitral regurgitation are going to be best heard. And mm-hmm. that's your left apex. Okay. From there, if you just take your stethoscope and go cranial and dorsal about an intercostal space, you'll be over the aortic valve. Now you're up at the left base. So you're gonna go up toward Mm -hmm. the spine and then forward toward the head for the aortic valve. And then the pulmonic valve, you're gonna go forward again, so cranial, and then you're gonna go slightly ventral to that. And that's where you hear the pulmonic valve the best. That being said, if you're listening to a Maltese, the pulmonic valve and aortic valve are going to be so close together, you're not (laughs) going to be able to differentiate. If you're listening to a large breed dog, you can often differentiate the two different valves. Um, If you have a puppy that you suspect a PDA in, so they have a loud barbaric murmur, and you don't hear a continuous nature to it, then you're going to go from that pulmonic valve area, you're going to go really cranial and really dorsal up into their armpit as like as deep up into the axillary as you can get. Mm. And that's where your murmurs of PDAs are going to be best heard. That's where you'll hear the continuous portion of, of the murmur. So you'll go from into Mm. Right. And right. that's something that, that people often forget to do is go to that really cranial dorsal area. Mm. From there, I'm going to feel my apical impulse again. I'm going to go straight through the chest wall to the right side, put my stethoscope on there. That's where I'm going to hear murmurs of tricuspid regurgitation the best. And then if I move the stethoscope from there directly across from the mitral valve, if I go cranial and dorsal again, that's where I'm going to hear murmurs of VSD the best. So those are sort of the six areas that you're going to listen to when you're listening for for murmurs. And where you hear them tells you a lot about your patient. Mm. So we had a dog come in on Thursday. It had a loud right-sided murmur um, that was not a VSD. We were confident because it was closer to the tricuspid valve. And what we suspected was pulmonary hypertension. Sure enough, the dog had pulmonary hypertension. So from the physical exam alone, we narrowed down the uh, differential list to a couple of things. Nice. And the most likely one was in fact the right one. So learning your valve areas and being able to say, this is where I hear it the loudest. 
knowing your, your grades, so one through six, um, one is a super soft murmur that only a cardiologist is gonna hear, a six is a murmur that's so loud you can hear it with your stethoscope <laughs> off the chest. Yeah. Five and six both have a palpable thrill, so you'll be able to feel the murmur. Uh, two is one spot, you can hear it in one spot. A three is you can hear it in mul multiple spots. A four is loud everywhere, but doesn't have a thrill. So when we do the physical exam lecture, we'll dive into those a little deeper, but that's kind of the, the, the basics for it. And nice. it's subjective, right? Like I saw Van Halen twice in concert. So what is a <laughs> two to me might be a three for you because you're, you're young and have be better ears. So when I say Van Halen, I mean the real Van Halen with, with David Lee Roth. <laughs> nice. um, Jordan, do you, do you know who that is? Yes, I do. I grew up listening to classic rock. Thank you. It's just, it was classic, <laughs> classic rock, rock and not rock at the time. Uh. Oh my. It's classic. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So now that we've got some patients, we have a, a sense of what they look like, what their disease likely is. The diagnostics in cardiology is a pretty limited menu. Um, we're obviously going to start with the physical exam and history because that's going to get us most to where we want to be. A rate, so I think the key point of all your diagnostics is what question am I trying to answer? Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of people think you can use an echocardiogram to diagnose heart failure. That is not actually correct. An echocardiogram is going to tell you one set of information. Radiograph is going to tell you another set of information. So mm -hmm. we'll just go through them. The radiographs are what we're going to use to look at the overall cardiac silhouette, but more importantly, tell us about the lungs and the vessels that are inside the chest. That is how we diagnose heart failure is with a radiograph. So classic story is you've got a small dog with a left apical murmur. It sounds like mitral regurgitation. You want to take it for anesthesia. The question is, is it safe for anesthesia? Well, if the dog is ostensibly normal and you hear a murmur, you can take an x-ray. And if it's not in heart failure and its heart is substantially normal on the radiograph, then you can go ahead and do anesthesia safely, just limit the, the fluid you give, mm. right? You don't necessarily need an echo to answer the question of is it safe for anesthesia? Because having heart disease is not a contraindication to anesthesia where heart failure patently is. Right. So I just need to rule out heart, heart failure. Now, if I take that radiograph and it has a, a markedly enlarged cardiac silhouette, even if I don't have pulmonary edema, well, that's a different story. Now I've got an indication for an echo. Right. Um, so our signs of heart failure on a radiograph are three, basically. The first is having an enlarged cardiac silhouette, particularly the chambers of the left heart. And when you start looking at radiographs more closely, you can isolate various chambers within a heart and say, okay, that's left atrium, that's left ventricle down there, the right atrium and 
and right ventricular on the front of the heart. So I see enlargement in the caudal dorsal fields. So that's probably left, left atrium, right? So these are things you learn. So enlargement of the left, left side of the heart, um, enlargement of the pul pulmonary veins. And there's a ton of textbooks out there that will show you where the pulmonary arteries are and the pul pulmonary veins. Usually the right lateral is the easiest one for seeing the pul pulmonary veins. There's a pair that run cranial to the heart that are pretty easy to see on a right lateral radiograph. Um, so we look, look at those. And then we look for, I love this phrase, infiltrates consistent with pulmonary edema, right? That's the radiologist ver version of it. So you're looking for fluid in the pulmonary parenchyma. Mm -hmm. So if you've got those three things then you've got heart failure, if you, um, look at the cardiac silhouette, you can get ideas about chamber enlargement. If you look at a dog with a PDA, they have bulges where the um, pulmonary artery and aorta come off of the heart that you can appreciate. So the radiographs tell us about the size, the overall size and shape of the heart, and they tell us all the information about the lungs. Another cool feature of the radiograph is that if you have right heart failure, often see the caudal vena cava is dis distended. Mm. So there's a, lot, there's a lot of different things you can get from the um, Pretty much every patient that you suspect heart disease in needs to have their blood pressure checked. We do every patient over five years of age. If you're a ju juvenile and you're not on medication, then we will spare you paying for that. But okay. if you're on meds, then you're gonna get your blood, blood pressure checked because most of your heart failure medicine, your med your medications are going to potentially lower blood blood pressure. Heart disease itself will lower blood pressure. High blood pressure can cause heart disease. So we need to check the blood pressure in the, the bulk of, of our patients. I tend to do Doppler, acylometric is fine. I can do Doppler much faster than I can let the uh, acylometric machine process. And, you know, there's a whole hour of dis discussion on blood, blood pressure. <laughs> um, so true. <laughs> the electrocardiogram or le electrocardiography is going to tell us about all the electrical fun function of the heart. Oddly enough, even though the ECG was invented over 100 years ago, we're looking at like 100 and 25, 130 years ago now, it's still the best diagnostic we have for characterizing and diagnosing arrhythmias. Mm. We've got some more advancements with it, but there's still nothing better than that. Mm. And so we run a lot. If you hear an arrhythmia, um, other than like a sinus arrhythmia, then doing an ECG is absolutely the right thing to do. If we have a patient we suspect is having syncope induced by an arrhythmia, then you can do a Holter monitor, which is simply a 24-hour ambulatory ECG that the patient can wear home. And that's really useful for characterizing. Uh, we talked about the boxers with arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. Well, the question might be, well, how many VPCs are you having in a day? And then can we bring that number down with, with therapy? Well, that's where the, the Holter monitor come, comes in. 
Um, nice. Echo is probably the bread and butter for most cardiologists. What it gives us is information about the specific chamber sizes and specific chamber function. It tells us what the heart looks like, specifically the valves. Are they thickened? Do we have ruptured chordae tendinae? Mm. Do we have um, abnormal tendons in the heart? So cats get moderator bands that will cross the left ventricle. Um, and the echo also tells us how well the heart's contracting. So a lot of the measurements that we do during an echo are looking at size and functions, specifically systolic function. The other part of the echo is the Doppler examination. And because I'm a, an echo geek, in my mind, there are two separate tests that you do all at the same time. Um, it's like running a PCV and a CP. They're se se separate things. You just do them together. Yeah. <laughs> Completely, diff completely different information, but you run them at the same time. Doppler is the same way. Um, so what Doppler tells us is all the hemodynamic information. And essentially what we're doing is we are using the speed of blood as it moves through the heart to make some assessment about how well that blood is moving and not to go too far afield here, I can use Doppler to quantify the amount of mitral regurgitation, right? I can mm. use it to diagnose pulmonic and aortic stenosis by looking at the, how, how tight is the stricture of a stenosis will be directly related to the speed of blood move, moving through it. So I'm looking at, looking at that velocity. Um, because I know the normal pressures inside of the heart, like what is left ventricular pressure in systole? What is right ventricular pressure in systole? You can take Doppler of the uh, jet of a ventricular sept septal defect as it crosses from one side, one chamber to the other. And I can make some assessment about the chamber pressures based on the velocity of blood as it comes through. If you stop and consider left ventricular pressure is 120, right ventricular pressure is about 20, that's roughly 100 millimeters of the mer mercury different. Well, I expect to see a really high velocity jet at 100 millimeters of mercury. So if I am looking at a dog with a VSD and they have a low velocity jet, that tells me that one of the chambers has started to equalize with the other. And mm. generally mm. it's the left side that's losing pressure and not the right side gaining pressure. That's a whole nother discussion there. So I can do that. And probably the coolest thing we can do with Doppler, and I think that this is very, very clinically useful. And this is not intuitive, but I'll try to explain it as easily as possible. I can look at the velocity of tricuspid regurgitation and I can make some assessments about what the pulmonary arterial pressures are. And it has to do with how fast the blood is being driven by the right ventricle during sy systole. It yeah. is the only way that we can diagnose pulmonary hypertension 
without doing a cardiac catheterization. So it's our non-invasive method of measuring pulmonary arterial. It's extremely useful for that because pulmonary hypertension is a potential cause of syncope. Hmm. So you get these Ah. small breed dogs that come in that have lung disease and they're fainting. A lot of them will have pulmonary hypertension that we diagnose on echo. Wow. So the echo is going to give us all of that size, function, and hemodynamic in, in, information. Um, we do a lot of serum chemistry. We don't do a ton of CBCs, not for the routine patient. We do CBCs in cardiology, yes, if we suspect there's some sort of infectious process going on. But interestingly enough, even the dogs with um, endocarditis don't often have elevated white, white blood, blood cell counts. They can, but they don't have to. That's mm-hmm. what's really annoying about the particular. <laughs> um, most often when we're doing a CBC, what we're looking for is polycythemia related to right to left shunts. So things oh. like the so-called reverse PDA, right? Mm. That's what we're look, looking for. Interesting. Um, okay. Patients that have pulmonic stenosis that is causing their foramen ovale to stay open. So patent foramen ovale, they'll get mixing of the deoxygenated blood into the arterial system. The body's response to that is, oh, I need more red red blood cells and they develop polycythemia. Interesting. That's where that comes from. So right. I'm hypoxic. I need more red blood cells. I need more red, red blood cells. That's exactly what hmm. that's exactly what what the kidneys say. Just hmm. like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we know kidneys. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a huge respect for kidneys, which is why we do all the serum chemistry, mm-hmm. right? Because we know that our diuretics and our ACE inhibitors are really hard on the kidneys. So yeah. We do a lot of, we check B- BUN and creatinine mostly and uh, electrolyte because the uh, furosemide particularly is p- potassium weight wasting. So right. constantly look, looking for that. And then, you know, we can get fancy. We can go to the cardiac cath, cath lab and do fun things. And I've diagnosed some or been working with cardiologists, not me personally, diagnose some really cool stuff in the cath, cath lab. <laughs> so we had a basset hound one time that had what's known as branch pulmonic stenosis. So he had a narrowing in one of the branches of his pulmonary ar- artery that was causing him to have a continuous mur- murmur. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, so I've seen some really cool things. I've seen um, dogs with two right atria and one left atria. They call that triatriatum dexter. That's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That's specifically a dog thing. Cats get triatriatum sinister, which means they have two left atrium and one right. And it creates an obstruction. It makes it really hard for blood to get back to the heart. and so these are things that we can uh, you know, diagnose in the cath lab. And then 
in the cath lab, of course, is where we're going to do our intervention procedures. Mm. We can close the patent ductus arteriosus with a really cool device called an Amplatz canine duct ductal occluder um, invented by Dr. Amplatz, who is a huge human cardiologist. He's like, there's tons of stuff na named after him. <laughs> um, we will do balloon valvuloplasty for pulmonic stenosis, where we can go in and dilate the valve itself and try to increase blood flow, reduce the workload of the right ventricle. Um, and then we do a lot of pacemakers for dogs that have six-sided syndrome or third-degree AV block, second or high-grade second-degree AV block. And then more often than I care to admit here in Florida, we seem to be doing a fair number of heartworm extractions. People, oh, heart guard, seriously. Wow. <laughs> yeah, um, and those are always fun and rewarding. If the patient goes back to ICU, they can be heartbreaking if they don't. Mm. So that's so that's kind of our menu of the cardiology diagnostics. Those are the the probably the biggest things that we do on a daily basis. Interesting, crazy, nice. And then I know the treatment's going to be based on like obviously what you're treating. So we'll get into more detail per episode. But like for the basics, I mean, I know in IM we have a basics <laughs> of, <laughs> of our treatment list. Yeah, no, we ab ab absolutely do too. Um, I think that the biggest thing we treat, okay, is going to be heart failure, congestive heart failure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have the arrhythmias that we treat and we'll use the appropriate things for those. And I'll, I'll talk, talk about that in a second. Um, and then for the interventions, like, okay, you need a pacemaker, you've got a PDA that's got to get closed, you know, so those sort of things. But really the, the day in and day out thing is treatment of congestive heart failure. And it can be broken into two phases. Um, and the acute phase may or, not, may or may not be emergent. You know, it might be you come in desperate for oxygen and you get thrown in oxygen and you know your treatment gets started and and so that's your acute phase and then you have the chronic phase that we've got you stabilized and now you're going to go home mm. just because you're not coughing and we've got the fluid out of your lungs doesn't mean you're not in heart failure because if we stop your meds fluid builds up and you're back in the hospital within 24 hours so mm -hmm. We talked about that earlier, that once you're a C, you generally stay a C. Mm -hmm. now, granted, there are exceptions because there's always exceptions to ev every rule. But for the most part, those things tend to hold true. So mm. our acute therapy is goal-directed. The number one goal that we have is increase oxygenation. And... To do that, you take two very big steps. One is you increase the fraction of inspired oxygen. So they're going to be put in an oxygen chamber. They're gonna get face mask. They're gonna get nasal cannula, whatever it takes. We're gonna increase that FiO2. Um, I will not go crazy here, I promise. <laughs> but there's a really interesting Thing that happens with oxygen in the lungs, your partial pressure of dissolved oxygen in your blood 
will be roughly five times or 500 times, excuse me, five, five times, sorry, five times what your FIO2 is expressed as a fraction, right? So if I'm breathing 20% oxygen, that's 0.2, right? Times 500, that's gonna give me a PaO2 of 100. Well, if I've got fluid all in my lungs and I can't get that oxygen across, then I'm going to be having 0.2 as my FiO2 and my PaO2 might be 60. Well, now I'm hypoxemic. So I'm gasping mm. for air. If I can put that patient in oxygen and change that 0.2 to 0.4, I take them from 60 back up to 120. Now they're ox oxygenating norm normally. So mm. understanding the relationship between the oxygen you breathe and how it gets into your blood bloodstream is an incredibly useful tool. So you take your percent oxygen, convert it to a decimal fraction, multiply by 500, that gives you your PaO2. Hmm. Um, so the first thing I wanna do is increase their FiO2. The second thing I wanna do is I want to get the fluid out of their lungs. And that's where your injectable di diuretic furosemide com comes in. So right. they're gonna get oxygen, they're gonna get furosemide, and they're gonna get left alone. <laughs> Sometimes we will use nitroglycerin paste. It's kind of fallen out of favor because people don't know that it actually is that helpful. We'll use it for the really severe cases because we got no nothing to lose. Mm. And what it does is it, it vasodilates primarily the venous system. And so blood will pool in the veins and stop it from being in the uh, built, building up in the heart and the lungs so much. Yeah, Again, we've used that before. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's benefit is minimal. So most people now just do the oxygen furosemide and leave, leave them alone. Mm -hmm. The one thing that people will sometimes do and it's going to be very patient based. And we, we do this a lot is if they're anxious, we will give them something to calm them down. Mm -hmm. You know, we're looking for something like butorphanol. That's a mixed um, mu kappa agonist and try and calm these guys down because it's incredibly stressful not to be able to breathe. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. only increases their symp sympathetic tone, which makes things worse. So when you come in the door, you're an acute failure, you're going to get oxygen, you're going to get furosemide, you're going to get left, left alone for an hour or so and just watch until you can start breathing better. Then you have this course of, okay, now we can do some diagnostics. Let's see what's, what's going on with them. Um, if they're a cat, they might actually have pleural effusion. So one thing that cats are not small, small dogs. They will mm -hmm. actually present with pleural effusion and heart failure. Dogs do not. And they might actually need a th thoracocentesis. But again, it's going to be, let's get you an oxygen. Let's get you some furosemide. And back in the day, before everybody had an ultrasound machine, people would take these cats off to radiology to try to prove they had pleural effusion and they would die. So mm. we used to say you know, just tap them. And if there's nothing there, then all you've done is put a needle in their chest. 
Right. Now, of course, everybody's got an ultrasound, ultrasound machine at finger's length, and you can stick a probe on, on their chest. And if they have pleural effusion, you're going to have to tap it because you don't have enough furosemide to actually get, get them cleaned out without crushing the kidneys. And again, we like right. kidneys. We want to keep them happy. <laughs> um, so that's kind of your acute therapy sort of, of things. And then... From there, we'll try to transition them under oral meds and we will get the pemobendin started as quickly as possible if they're not already on it. Pemobendin is a wonderful drug. It's what's known as an inodilator. So what it does is it increases contractility and it also has some vasodilatory effect that makes, it reduces uh, the workload on the heart. So that makes life a little bit better. And I'll, let me throw some, I, I probably should have done this sooner. I'm going to throw some terminology out there that you guys have probably heard, but maybe only partially understand. Um, well, not you two because you're hyper intelligent, but the rest <laughs> of the world. No. Um, <laughs> preload, afterload, and contractility. So I mentioned preload before. Preload is simply the amount of volume available to fill the heart at the beginning of each cardiac cycle. Afterload is the pressure the heart has to work against to move blood forward. So if you have an increase in blood pressure, you have an increase in afterload. You have a decrease in blood pressure because you've given a vasodilator, you have an effective decrease in afterload. That's how that works. And the contractility is pretty much what you think, you think it is. So hemobendin is an afterload reducer and increases contractility so you get better cardiac output. And the better your cardiac output, the less edema you develop. So we'll get them on mm. pemobendin as early as possible. So your mainstays for chronic therapy are going to be your diuretic. Furosemide is the most commonly one that we use. You're going to get them on pemobendin, your inodilator as quick, quickly as possible. As they transition out of the hospital, most cardiologists will add an ACE inhibitor. For people who don't know what an ACE inhibitor is, it stands for angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitor. So there's this wonderful mechanism for keeping blood pressure up called the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. Our friends, the kidneys again, modulate this. And it is a wonderful thing for keeping your blood pressure up if you happen to be in a gunfight and you get shot. In the long term of heart failure, it becomes maladaptive. What the uh, mm. renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system does in brief for people is it expands your blood volume and increases your sympathetic tone in an attempt to keep your blood pressure up which is great in the acute setting. In the chronic setting, it's bad for you. For you. Mm. So we give a drug, an ACE inhibitor, so something like enalapril or bernazapril. And what that does is it suppresses the conversion of angiotensin from angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2. And that's the active form of angiotensin. And what that does is it just keeps the body from re retaining fluid. So you can control the fa failure method. Right. So we have furosemide, we have pemobendin, and we have our ACE, ACE inhibitor 
that are all going to help keep volume down and cardiac out, output up. And then today, because of some really good studies, when I say today, I mean in this day and age, we use um, a drug called spironolactone, which is a also a diuretic, but what it does that we use it for is it modulates aldosterone, and that allows the heart to remodel back to some sort of normal function. So wow. we add the spironolactone in as an additive di diuretic, which is cool because it's actually potassium sparing. So it will keep you from losing potassium. Um, but what it really does is it helps the, the myocytes remodel back more to a, a normal structure. And that's awesome. sort of the basis of chronic heart failure therapy. And then you add to that, okay, well, you've got ventricular arrhythmias or atrial arrhythmias, and then we're going to kind of manage those, those things as well. So um, that's where your antiarrhythmic drugs like so sodalol and mixilatine come in. So those are what we're going to use to control ventricular arrhythmias. And then an easy way to remember your atrial arrhythmias. So the most common atrial arrhythmia is atrial fibrillation, which starts with the letter A, in case you hadn't guessed. Um, and you treat atrial fibrillation with B, C, and D. So beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and digoxin. So oh. we will often put patients with atrial fibrillation on something like diltiazem because it helps slow the ventricular response to that cascade of uh, badness coming down from the atria, but it's not as negatively inotropic, meaning it doesn't reduce contractility as much as something like a beta blocker will. Digoxin huh. is still used. It's the oldest cardiac drug we have. Um, it's been around literally for hundreds of years. It is a inotrope, a positive inotrope. It will increase contractility. But what it really does for us is it will help also reduce the ventricular response to the atrial fib fibrillation. So sometimes we'll use diltiazem and digoxin in, in com combination. Mm. So those yeah. are kind of the, the, the mainstays of what, what we do. I was going to say, those are all the medications we're usually filling. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, as far as what technicians do in these scenarios is, well, we have to spot it. We have to be able to recognize a patient that can't breathe when we see it. And there's an interesting phenomenon that occurs when these dogs get super stressed out is they sort of vasoconstrict their tongue and their tongues will look markedly purple. But if yeah. you look at their gums, they're still sort of quasi pink. Yeah. And some of that is just because they're stressed. Mm. So that's one thing that we watch for is we actually look at their gum color, not their tongue color. Hmm. Um, you need vascular access on these guys. And anybody who's worked in anesthesia knows that the mantra is put in the biggest catheter you can possibly get into your patient, except when they're in heart failure. Yeah. Right, because the chances of me giving the little dog in heart failure a bolus of IV fluids is virtually zero. Like yeah. I'm not gonna, even if he goes, even if he codes, I'm not gonna be giving him a ton of fluid. 
And it's mm -hmm. not going to help the scenario. So what I tell our techs is if they're coming in for a congestive heart failure, then yes, you can go ahead and put in a 22 gauge catheter in that dog because I'm not going to need to bolus fluids to it. I just need good solid vascular access. Yep. Of course, the exception to that rule, we haven't touched on this yet, is the dog with pericardial effusion, right? So this is exactly the opposite. It's the one time a cardiologist is going to bolus a liter of fluids into a golden re retriever. Right. <laughs> so I'm going to take a little aside here. I hope everyone will bear with me. What brings your patient into the hospital when they have pericardial effusion is the presence of cardiac tamponade. And what tamponade is, is there's enough pressure inside the pericardium from the effusion that it's compressing the right atrium. If you compress the right atrium, here's this word again, you reduce preload to the right ventricle. So the right ventricle can't fill. Well, if the right ventricle can't fill, guess what? The left ventricle gets all of its blood from the right ventricle. So if my right ventricle can't fill, right ventricular cardiac output goes down, preload to the left ventricle goes down. Mm -hmm. Now I have fluid building up because my right atrium is compressed. I develop ascites. My dog might pass out because his blood pressure is low. On physical exam, he's tachycardic because his blood pressure is low. And when we do blood pressure, we'll talk about the relationship between heart rate and blood, blood pressure. And people want to give them furosemide. Like, oh, it's a heart dog. He's got, you know, he's in... He said, right side of heart failure, I need to give him furosemide, which is exactly the wrong thing to do because all you're going to do is reduce the blood pressure even further. What that dog needs is the large bore catheter and shock levels of fluid given to expand the blood volume, get better filling of the right heart, better filling of the left heart, blood pressure comes up, get them tapped. Right. So that's the opposite of your sort of standard thing. So, um, back to the catheter. So a, if I suspect pericardial effusion, I'm going for a big catheter. If I'm, if it's straight up congestive heart failure, I'm going for a small catheter. Um, and then knowing these patients' blood pressure is incredibly important. I really hope that every tech gets out there and masters the skill of doing a blood pressure one of the first papers I wrote for the Veterinary Technician Journal, which is now defunct, I guess, but it's probably out there online somewhere, was on blood, blood pressure. And there's a lot of do's and don'ts. And I think it's incumbent upon us to, it's a skill that we do and makes a huge difference to our patients. And so quick example, you can have dogs that will tear their left atrium so it doesn't explode all over the place but the left atrium will get so dilated that the tissue layers will separate and they'll bleed into the pericardial space well i want to keep the blood pressure in that dog low like 90 to 110 because i want to keep the pressure in the left atrium low so it doesn't keep bleeding but mm -hmm. if i can't do a proper blood pressure i don't know how well i'm managing my my patient so, you know, this isn't a venue to get into the details of how to do a blood pressure, but I would definitely say every technician out there that's going to be working with any patients in the ICU, ER, 
um, anesthesia, cardiology, like make sure you feel really good about your blood pressure skills and double check the research. Um, I, I'm, I might hurt somebody's feeling with this. I don't think that we're very good at taking a cuff and laying it sideways on a leg and determining that that's 40%. I've seen a lot of people miscalc miscalculate that and then their cuff is the wrong size and their blood pressures are incorrect. I think that you're better off taking a tape measure, um, measuring the leg in centimeters, multiplying that number by 0.4. That will give you your cuff size in a dog. You multiply by 0.3 if it's a cat, case anyone cares. Um, and there's research that shows this. I'm not just making this up. There's data out there that says this is the right way to do these things. And we can do an awesome job at it if we would just take the time to hold ourselves to a huge professional standard. Off my soapbox. <laughs> You're allowed to soapbox. It's fine. We, we soapbox around here. It's okay. <laughs> um, it's just, it's such a huge part of what we do as techs that we should be very good at it. Yes. And I know, I know techs who've been doing this for 20 years and they can take a cuff and lay it sideways and they'll be right every time, but they've been doing it for, for, for 20 years. Mm -hmm. So maybe when you're starting, you start measuring and then you go back to like, okay, uh, my, my, es my es estimations are good. Validate your technique, make sure it's right. Even if you don't have the tape measure, all you have to do is carry like a eight or 10 inch piece of old I IV tubing in your pocket. You take that, you wrap, wrap it around the leg, you find out what the circumference is, you know, you pinch it where, where they meet, you fold that in half, that's 50%. Now I know what 50% of my dog's circumference of his leg is. And I pick a cuff that's slightly more narrow than that. Mm. Easy, you know? Um, so anyway, we need to be able to do really good radio, radiographs for our doctors on these heart, heart failure patients. Well, of course we need to do them for everybody. And I have run into, so I hate taking radiographs. I hate it, hate, hate it. And I know why. Because when I started doing this in the 70s, it took me 30 minutes to develop one radiograph <laughs> to find yeah. out it was wrong and I had to go back and do it again. Now it's a little bit better, right? We have digital rate radiography and if it's not right, we can just sh shoot it again. And I've run into the problem of people getting a little sloppy with their radiographs. Again, hold yourself to a high standard. Yes, you can take it again, but should you, maybe you should do a really excellent job the first time, get it done in one or two shots and get out of there. The other thing that I see people do with radiographs and I, I scold my techs that I work with on this all the time is they take a radiograph of the chest field and they've got half the abdomen or more in it. And mm -hmm. they say, nope, no problem, I'll just, I'll just, edit that out. The doctor will never know. Like, yes, you have covered up your mistake. However, the way your digital radiography works, it averages all the densities across the, the plate and it will wash out what happens in the lungs because it's taking into account the density in the abdomen. 
So you can edit it out, but you haven't fixed the problem. So we need to make sure that we're doing a really good job with our radiographs. We're getting the right field in, we're getting the right settings. We're not taking more shots than we absolutely have, have to. And I, the, the couple of techs I work with now, we've really started doing that. We're really trying to, our, our doctor usually is a, two, is a two view doctor. We've been striving so hard to take two shots, get them perfect and get out. It's wonderful. And it's a great game to play with, with yourself. Like, can I do this in two shots and get out of here? Um, I think those are the biggest things that we can do as tech technicians is make our, our technical skills as amazing as po possible because it's yeah. efficient. You know, I'm going to uh, lecture just a little bit more. I always say that vet techs are like Navy SEALs. So <laughs> Navy SEALs do three things really well. They shoot, they move, and they can communicate. Well, vet techs do three things really well also. We have highly skilled tech technical ability. Okay, that's the equivalent of shooting. We can do it efficiently, and we mm -hmm. communicate with each other and our doctors very well. Right. These yeah. are things we can strive for. The fourth thing that Navy SEALs will say they're good at is they're experts at becoming experts. And I've never met a vet tech who wasn't keen to learn some, something new. <laughs> I, I, I think we have fit that mold. Mm. So there's very good evidence that shows that the respiratory rate will change in the presence of pulmonary edema mm -hmm. before you can recognize it on a radiograph. Oh, mm. so we very strongly, it's hard to get people to do it, but we strongly mm. encourage people to count the respiratory rate when the patients are sleeping and then write it down and bring it in at their follow-up visits because it allows us to more accurately pinpoint improvement and decompensation. Basically, if your patient has a heart failure and their sleeping respiratory rate is over 35 or 40, most cardiologists would say that's an emergency and they need to come in. Now, remember, okay. this is a respiratory rate when they are sound asleep. Yeah. If they're up and sniffing around and doing stuff, it doesn't count. So we right. try. And I tell clients, like, don't even walk across the room. Let them go to sleep and then count them from across the room. Because if you walk near them, they're going to wake up and don't look, don't look at them when they're having the puppy dream. Yeah. No, no that's, <laughs> that's also that's, different. Yeah, that's true. That is yeah. ab absolutely something you have kept advice against, but yeah. it's probably the most important thing that clients can do at home. The mm -hmm. other useful part of that is they'll call and say, I don't know if this is an emergency or not. Mm -hmm. And that sleeping respiratory rate will tell them, Hey, that's over 40. It's an emergency. You need mm -hmm. to come. Right. So I think that's a, a good thing. And you're not going to fix heart failure. You're going to manage it. Mm -hmm. right. right. Unless it's related to something like a bradycardia and you put in a pacemaker, you're probably not going to fix heart failure. We're talking about managing it. And most people will treat heart failure until their patient or their pet stops eating. That seems to be right. the number one sign that people say he's not himself. He won't even eat. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. It's very true. Um, I know for cautions, I mean, I, I know this because we, we see a ton of, I think there's a lot of overlap with cardiac as well as <laughs> I am. <internal> medicine. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we work hand in hand quite a bit. Um, I know this is one of the things that we teach newer people or, or even like our emergency patients, right. Is our heart failure patients don't mess with them. (laughs) You know, if you need to do an x-ray, pay attention to the patient. If they're struggling, you may have to abort, right? Like it's like, do, do what you can, but if they're struggling, like don't send them into like a crisis because you need to get something on them. Those are a lot of those patients that we might take, uh, dv views instead of ed because they're struggling on their back you're like you can just sit there that's fine yeah (laughs) you know we didn't talk about this but with regard to that dv versus bd they have indications when you should do do them oh yeah we don't Mm -hmm. we don't fully recognize sometimes so the dv is going to be better for assessing the cardiac silhouette because the heart stays upright in its normal position. Mm, but the right. VD is going to be better for assessing for fluid. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that does right? make sense. Because the fluid will fall and it'll be closer to the, um, to the film. plate. Yeah. And the chest is wider at the top than it is at the sternum. So oh, right. if, if we're assessing for pneumonia or effusion, if the patient will tolerate it, we'll go ahead and try to do the VD. If they won't, then we will just default to the DV. Most of the time we do a DV because pulmonary edema will show up well in both of those films. Mm. So that's the question, like, why do I do a DV versus a VD? But your your point about handling them gently is, cannot be overstated. I know I've nope. seen some people really struggle with them and I'm like, you just need to nope. stop. You just, just stop. need to stop. Yeah. Quickly uh, snap the radiograph right. and put them back in oxygen. <laughs> yeah. Or if it's that bad, just take a, a lateral and be done with it. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. you can come yeah. back later. Uh, we carry them outside. We don't yeah. let them walk outside mm-hmm. depending on how, how stable they are. If they need to be in mm-hmm. oxygen, they probably need to be carried. Yeah, carry them outside, let them pee real quick and bring them yep. back in. And then they go back back in. Because yeah. again, we're yep. trying to increase that fraction of inspired o- oxygen. Yeah. 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 It's the tip of the week. I like I like your tip of the week that you wrote down. So small IV catheters are fine for dogs with congestive heart failure. Um I I mean, I think too, because we do see a ton of our congestive heart failures coming through emergency. And I think they're so in go big or go home mode <laughs> that I yes. think they forget it's okay in this particular case. If, if we're suspicious of congestive heart failure, just you, you can go with the smaller one. And, and it's so much easier to get the smaller one in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you want to, you want to be quick and efficient about these things. Yeah. yeah. So that's probably the tip of the week. Yes. I have another tip of the week I just thought of. Ooh, so, we can do two this week. It's cool. So another <laughs> tip of the week that I would say is these patients in congestive heart failure, be extremely conscious of the amount of volume you flush their catheters with. 
Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. We have a standard rule that if they're in heart failure, they get like a 0.3 mil flush period. Especially Just enough to flush tiny. the catheter. Just enough to flush the catheter. I've seen yeah. cats get pushed into heart failure for other reasons because somebody came and flushed your catheter with three mils every two two hours. Like yeah. that, you you overvolume them. That's so a that really, was- really good point. And I think we don't we don't necessarily measure flush. We, right? don't, we don't record and we should. it, and, but I think in these patients, it's probably a good idea to record Absolutely. it, especially yeah. your Absolutely. teeny tiny guys, because three meals could be an hour's worth of foods for some of these patients. Right, and we have a tendency to just empty the syringe unless yeah. we stop and think think about it, so it's a, yeah. that's, tip. that's a very good tip of the week is be conscious of the amount of fluid you're pushing through your catheters. Yeah. And then with regards to the stethoscope, the tip of the week is you get what you pay pay for. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yes. Buy, buy, buy a stethoscope that will serve you well and has good acoustics. You'll be glad you did in, in the long, long run, particularly if you work in a noisy uh, room like an ICU. Mm, yeah, yeah, for sure. Or in sur- surgery where yeah. there's a lot of machines and things going on. Yeah, it's very true. All right. So I think that wraps up this week's episode. That was um, a very good two-parter on the basics. And then we're going to throw in a physical exam uh, episode, just because I think once we kind of got talking more, I know I need to learn more when it comes to just (laughs) like what I would like to know about where to listen, how to palpate things, how to, you know, just how to handle these patients from the get-go, especially since you were saying physical exam really, um, plays a huge role in like the, the diagnosing and the, the differential list. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll do that, but thanks everybody for tuning in this week. Thank you, Ed, um, for being with us on the series, <laughs> <laughs> right. Being the, uh, the brain for this. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> definitely my pleasure. So, and then if you guys have questions, um, definitely go to the Facebook group or, uh, the, the membership and, well, it, you know, I'm sure Ed can either field them them himself or we can forward it to him um, just because, you know, we, I feel like I feel like a lot of people are going to want to know about cardiac. Yeah, I have a feeling <laughs> this is going to be a popular popular series. <laughs> and so what we'll do is this is the end of our basics for cardio. Next week, we will be doing our vet tech appreciation week episode. So it'll a little break and then we'll come back with cardio, um, after vet tech week, but have a wonderful vet tech week. Hopefully you guys have fun and get ready for it and super excited. And, you know, maybe you can convince your clinic to buy you a really nice stethoscope for vet tech week. Yeah. Good suggestion. (laughs) You just suggest that to all the bosses out there, (laughs) but, um, All right. Well, you guys have a wonderful week. Keep getting your learn on and we'll talk to you next week. Bye guys. Bye. (laughs) Thank you for listening to today's episode of the internal medicine for vet techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast. 
and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher, and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you.